0: Learn how to prove your social media ROI with a free training or a free trial by visiting agorapulse.com slash SME today. Again, agorapulse.com slash SME. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the show for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by James Clear, and we're going to talk about habits in a time of uncertainty, how to reclaim lost habits and start new ones. And I'm here to tell you this podcast episode is solid gold. You're absolutely going to love everything that James Clare has to offer. And you might even want to listen to it more than once. By the way, if you want to reach me, you can tag me on Instagram. I am at Stelzner, or you can email podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. AI has been a massive disruptive force over the past year. That's why we're excited to announce our brand new show. Introducing AI Explored. It's a weekly show hosted by me, Michael Stelzner, if you want to understand how to put AI to work, this is the show for you. Each week, we'll dive deep into using AI to your advantage. We're talking the practical, tactical stuff that I know you're probably craving. Search for AI Explored on your favorite podcast app, and happy listening.
1: Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide.
0: Today, I'm very excited to be joined by James Clear. If you don't know who he is, he is the author of an amazing book that's been selling millions of copies known as Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. He's also publisher of the popular newsletter at jamesclear.com. James, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm really excited to have you on, James. Today, James and I are going to explore how to reclaim lost habits and start new ones, which I think is especially relevant in a time like now, a time of uncertainty. Before we dig in to the interview, I would love to hear a little bit of your backstory. How in the world did you get to the point where you decided to write a book on habits, start wherever you want to start?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, people are building habits all the time. So I obviously had many habits before I thought about them uh, consciously or thought about them carefully. But my first exposure to a lot of the ideas that I ultimately ended up writing about was in high school. I played a variety of sports growing up. My dad was a professional baseball player, played in the minor leagues with St. Louis Cardinals. Hmm. And, you know, so I wanted to, to play sports as well play baseball in particular. And uh, I suffered a really serious injury. My sophomore year, I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And it was an accident that slipped out of my classmates' hands and struck me kind of right between the eyes. Broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, your ethmoid bone, just like fairly deep inside your skull. Shattered both eye sockets. Wow. Anyway, I I went to the nurse's office, couldn't answer questions well. Had to be taken on a stretcher to the ambulance, local hospital. Pretty soon after that, I started to struggle with basic functions like swallowing and breathing and eventually had to be air-cared to the hospital. And I was actually placed into a medically-induced coma overnight because I I kept having seizures and wasn't able to undergo surgery and and so on. But the punchline from all that, from that, that terrible serious injury, is that I couldn't drive a car for the next nine months. My first physical therapy session, I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line. And it was the first time in my life when I was forced to, I, I had to start small. And so I started with stuff that almost like now seems insignificant or like not even really worth mentioning. Like I went to bed at the same hour each night. I, once I was done with physical therapy, I, this is the first time in my life I started training in the gym consistently, you know, at first once or twice a week and then three or four times studying and preparing for class for an hour each day, like small habits, but they gave me a sense of control over my life again, a sense that of control that I felt like had been taken away with the injury. And gradually, I was able to make it back onto the baseball field. I wasn't smooth. I got cut from the team the next year when I tried to come out. I ended up making a, a college team but didn't really get to play early on. But each year, I ended up making my way onto the field more and more. So my sophomore season, I was a starter. My junior season, I was a team captain. Then my senior year— Ended up being an academic all-American, which is about thirty players or so around the country, and I never played professionally. But I feel like I maximized my potential given the the challenges and circumstances that I faced. And so that whole experience sort of taught me about the power that habits have. That you know we all have these things that happen to us, these situations or you know unfortunate circumstances that we don't ask for. And, you know, luck and misfortune plays a role in all of our outcomes in life, but we don't have control over it. And so what we do have control over are our habits and the way we respond. And so that was sort of my first practical exposure to those ideas. And then the next couple of years, I went on and studied science formally. I mostly was chemistry and physics and like hard sciences. My actual degree was biomechanics. And then eventually ended up writing about uh, all these topics that, you know, now I've written about for the last eight or 10 years or so about how habits form and how we can use them and what the science is behind it and how we can apply it to daily life. So I sort of came into it first, stumbled into it, I guess, as a practitioner, and then became more of like a writer and a student of the ideas in the years that followed.
0: So when you say writing, does that mean you were blogging or were you writing for other people's publications?
1: So I, I went to undergrad, and then I went to graduate school, and that was while I was in graduate school, I was studying in the Center for Entrepreneurship, and so I kind of got this itch to like start my own thing. And right around that time, this was like 2009, 2010, I was starting to read some of these blogs online, and it was kind of the first time that blogs were starting to mature, and there were like a handful of people that were making six figures a year from just running a blog. And so that sort of gave me an idea. I tried some other business stuff, too, for the first two years. I tried a bunch of ideas that didn't work. But that did sort of, like, whet my appetite for writing. And so when I started, I wrote on my own blog first. But, you know, my stuff has been published or republished in many different places now. So, you know, most of the major publications, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, Lifehacker, you know, whatever. So it was a mix of both. But the focus was always on writing on my own site and kind of building up my my audience on my own platform
0: and tell us how the book kind of came about
1: so i started writing the first article i published at JamesClear.com was november twelfth, two 2012 and in a way you know this book sort of wrote itself in the sense that i had to practice the ideas in order to write about them so and this is one of the things I i try to do as a writer is to write about things that i've actually used in the real world so You know, I had to build good writing habits to write a blog and to write the book. I had to build good exercise habits to get in shape. I had to build good productivity and management habits to create a successful business. And I think all that stuff's really important that I actually had to try it so that I know what it's like to fail and to, you know, in real life and occasionally to succeed. So I started by writing two articles a week. And I did that from 2012 to 2015, so for about three years, and that was what helped build up the audience. I think my email list was around 220,000 subscribers, or somewhere around there, in like mid 2015, when uh, I started to get contacted from agents and pu- a couple of publishers directly, and just started to think a little bit more about it. You know, early on. I, like many creators, I kind of had this, I don't know want to call it imposter syndrome, but it was sort of like, you know, who am I to be the expert on mm. habits? And I had one friend who told me, look, the way you become an expert is by writing about it every week. And so I really internalized that idea. And I do think it's true. You know, once I got three years in, it was like, yeah, there aren't actually that many people who have written 150 or 200 articles about habits. So you do learn a lot along the way. And I had a little bit of a science background and whatnot to rely on as well. So anyway, agents and publishers were reaching out at that point. And uh, so we wrote a proposal. I went to New York and pitched it to a bunch of publishers for a week and we got a variety of bids. And I ended up going with the team that I'm with at Penguin Random House. And I love them, they're they're great, I'm really happy to work with them. I spent the next three years writing the book, so my blog writing, the frequency decreased a little bit as I was working more on the book, although I did still publish there occasionally. And so 2012 to 2015 was build the platform, build the audience. There were a variety of ideas from that period that ended up making it themselves into the book, uh, making their way into the book, but I would say probably 90% of it was either new or so heavily reworked that it essentially was new. And then, so 2015 to 2018 was writing the book. And then October 16th, 2018 is uh, when Atomic House launched.
0: Yeah. And we're about a year and a half as of this recording. And when I last looked, you were in the top 11 all-time bestsellers on Amazon. How's it been? How's the ride? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, it's been crazy. I mean, obviously, I don't think any reasonable person could uh, expect a book to, to do as well as it had. I... And, you know, thrilled, of course, that it's done really well. It's reached a lot of people. We're over 1.7 million copies worldwide now. That's crazy. We're fairly confident we'll hit 2 million before we reach the two-year mark. And by the way,
0: for everybody who's listening, that is completely an anomaly. I mean, like, this is not normal. <laughs> I mean, i published two, yeah, two books. You. And, and, um, and I got to tell you, you're on to something here, which is amazing. That's why I wanted to talk to you today. But, you know, this is what's great is your story Your story is so amazing because you're proof that if you put in the hard work and you do what we're going to be talking about today, that you can open up an incredible opportunity. I don't know if you want to respond to that before we get into my next question. Feel free if you want to.
1: Well, I just feel very fortunate with how it's gone. And, you know, the, as I kind of explained the timeline there a minute or two ago, it was probably like five or six years of work to ultimately get the whole thing out. Right. And in the middle of it, it felt really long. And there were quite a few times when, like, I don't know if I felt like giving up, but I certainly felt like, is this going to be worth it? Mm. You know, like, it's just so much effort. And uh, looking back on it now, I'm glad that I took the time to do it right the first time rather than to rush it. And I don't know, there are probably a lot of lessons uh, in there for life in general. You know, it's like, if you don't have time to do it right the first time, when are you going to have time to do it over? And so... I'm glad that it played out the way it did, even though it felt painful in the moment. But yeah, I feel very fortunate that it's reaching a lot of people. And ultimately, you know, of course it's great to sell a lot of books, but the biggest thing that matters here is I hear from people every day that are like, this actually worked for me, you know, like I was actually able to make progress or make a change. And so um, that part feels cool. You know, it kind of feels like, you know, if I don't do anything else, at least I did that, right? Like at least, at least I was able to to help some people make some changes there. So yeah, I I think it's, it's been a great start and I definitely am feeling grateful for it.
0: So we're recording this on March 30, just mere weeks into the uh, global pandemic. And I'm curious, you know, why do you think habits are so important, especially when we're in the midst of a time of uncertainty? What do you want to say about that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, there's anytime there's a big change in your environment, there's a big change in your habits. And a lot of people have changed their environment in a big way right now. You know, they're working from home instead of working at the office, they're sheltering in place and, you know, instead of uh, going about their business or traveling or whatever. So there's a big reason why the, you know, the topic of habits is certainly relevant in this time and I think could be helpful. But the other thing is anytime you're facing a lot of uncertainty your habits can ground you, you know, when you're not quite sure where to look or what to do, you can return to the fundamentals. And I think that, you know, as uncertainty and stress increases, as we have that in a lot of other areas of life, we can turn to our habits to be sort of a rock or a foundation Mm -hmm. and return to the fundamentals, show up and do that well. And you can at least say, look, you know, I don't know what else this day is going to hold or what the tomorrow, the news cycle is going to say or whatever, but I know that I can at least have a productive day in that way. And so I think for a lot of us, maybe the place to direct your attention is to try to win the day right now, to win the moment in front of you and returning to your habits and using those to ground you, I think is a great way to do that.
0: Well, and I would guess that Like for me, I'm not commuting to the office anymore. I'm commuting to the home office, which is just down the hall. And for me, I've decided I'm going to do the things that I normally do when I get up and go to work. I'm wearing the same clothes. I'm doing the same things. And everything is, I'm taking my lunch at the same time, even though I'm eating it at home. And for me, it's just been kind of getting my brain in the game because the habits that I have getting ready to go to work kind of set my brain focused on the work that I have to do. And I would imagine there's got to be a little bit of that involved as well, right? Getting our head in the right space before we start our work.
1: Yeah, for sure. I kind of, I don't know that we fully appreciate it because it's happening on autopilot a lot, but. If you don't have all those typical routines that you go through with your commute or the way you get ready for the day or putting the same clothes on or whatever, it's easy to feel kind of unmoored, you know, like you're, you're kind of just blowing all around in the breeze and you, what ends up happening, I think is people get distracted more easily. It's like whatever happens to pop up during the day is what I spend my time on. So uh, establishing a good morning routine or getting into to the flow the way you normally do, having a little bit of structure around your day, like taking lunch at the same time. Those are all good examples to provide like a little bit of a buffer or a barrier against all the other things that could creep in and keep you on track. So I, yeah, I definitely agree with your logic there.
0: What is environment design and what do we need to know about it in particular?
1: Well, so this is a concept that I talk about in Atomic Habits. And uh, the idea is that a lot of people feel like they're the victim of their habits, right? Your habits are happening to you. I don't have control. I do it before I even realize it. But it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to be the victim of your habits. You can be the architect of them. And environment design is one way to structure or design Contexts or places that serve you and kind of get you moving in the right direction. So another kind of big picture way to think about this is you cannot have a habit that is not occurring within an environment, right? All, All behavior takes place within a certain context within some space in the world and so often your habits get tied to a particular context like for example your couch might be where you have the habit of turning on netflix at 7 p.m when you get home from work right or the coffee shop might be the context where you have the habit of scrolling twitter checking your social media feeds at 10 a.m when you go over for a coffee break and so these places get tied with behaviors and even if you aren't consciously saying it right you kind of have this like behavioral bias when you're in that space. So now that everybody's you know working from home or sheltering in place or whatever, if you sit down at your couch and you think this is where I want to do some emails for a little while or work on this project, you may without even thinking about it being kind of pulled towards turning on the TV or checking Netflix or browsing social media or whatever. Whatever normally happens in that context. So one of the lessons or the practical takeaways for environment design is that you want to, as much as possible, create one space, one use. So there are a couple different ways this could come into play. There's one writer that I know who, he has three devices. He's got his desktop computer, his iPad, and his phone. And the desktop is where he does all his writing. Nothing, social media doesn't happen there, reading doesn't happen there. It's when he's at the desktop, he's writing. The iPad is what he uses to read anything online, blogs, etc., And then his phone is what he uses for social media and text. And he doesn't even have the apps on the other devices. So, and on his desktop, I think he has like a website blocker that prevents, you know, Twitter or whatever. So by having more clearly delineated spaces, it becomes much easier to stick to the appropriate habit in that space. And that's something I think a lot of people, you know, if you're working from home for the first time, you probably don't have those spaces clearly defined. And this was, for me, when I first started my business, I was working from home. I was working on my apartment at the time. And it was like, well, is the kitchen table where I answer emails or is that where I eat dinner? Mm -hmm. Is the couch where I write the next chapter of this thing or is it where I watch TV with my wife? Like what's happening where? And because it wasn't clearly defined, it became very hard for me to shut off. And I think people kind of go one of two ways with this. Either – they tend to be very distracted and they can't focus or they just become like workaholics and they never shut off. They're always working because there's no clear delineation of when you should stop the work day. So I happen to be more in the latter camp where I was just like always doing stuff. But the point is the same, uh, whether we're talking about digital spaces or physical spaces, you can do the same thing with like the chairs in your room. Like one chair can become the reading chair. And w- when you want to read a book, you sit in that chair. So the more that you can tie your habits and behaviors to a particular space or a particular device, the easier it becomes to focus on the intended thing and to not get pulled off track.
0: I love this. I'm recording in my little home office, which is maybe a 10 by 10 foot room. And there's a little reclining chair in the corner that every morning I, I sit in with my laptop and there's a desk in here that I've prior to today never used. So what I do, did was I brought my workstation from work, which is a 27 inch iMac home. And I set it up exactly the same at home as it was at work. And I don't sit back in that little comfy chair until my day is done. (laughs) Mm. And, And I even brought my chair from work home because I like it and I can sit in it all day long. And I've tried to recreate as much as possible the environment that I had at work. I even have a little light above my desk that is artificial light that I turn on to kind of simulate what it's like at work because I have big windows with a lot of natural light. And I've just found that I am actually super productive as long as the kids don't come screaming by. (laughs) Sure. So that's kind of what you're talking about, right?
1: Yeah. 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 And like part of that and that idea of recreating the space where you've already built the habits and stuff, great in this particular circumstance. Um, and just the idea of, you know, surrounding yourself with the the more productive things. There also is like a bigger principle of environment design, which is you're really trying to make sure that the good habits are the path of least resistance. Mm. So a lot of the time people, you know, now that again, big change in the environment. So you have a big change in behavior. People come home and they're working from home. And there's a lot of things that now are the path of least resistance that maybe weren't before. Like, first of all, you probably didn't have a couch and a TV as close to your office as it is now. So maybe it's easier for you to turn stuff on and just, like, waste an hour watching stuff. Or you may, if you're working at, like, your kitchen table, maybe the pantry is, like, right around the corner. And now it's very easy to snack all Mm -hmm. the time. And so you want to restructure the environment so that the behaviors that you want to do are, one – obvious. So they should be available, visible, easy to see. What's the first thing that you see when you open up your phone screen? Like when I wanted to build a reading habit, I put audible on the home screen. So that it would be the first thing I'd see so that it would remind me to, to read every time I picked up my phone. Same story. What's the first thing you see when you look at your kitchen counter? It should be healthier foods, or if you want to put everything away, then nothing. But if you have like chips and other stuff out, it's going to be much more likely that you eat it rather than having it tucked away in the top corner of the pantry or down in the bottom of the freezer or whatever? What's the first thing that you see when you walk into your office space, wherever that happens to be? It should be, you know, the productive thing or whatever the, the thing is that you want to work on. So one, making it obvious, available, visible, easy to see. And then two, making it as easy as possible. So frictionless, simple, convenient, You want to try to remove steps between you and the good behaviors and increase steps between you and the bad ones. You know, it's it's what people have always recommended for like eating healthy, where they're like, well... If you have ice cream in the fridge, then you can just pull it right out. If the closest that it is, is out of the house and down the street, two miles at the grocery store, well now suddenly there's a lot more friction and so it's less likely you're going to do it. So you want to take that methodology, that idea, make it obvious and make it easy and apply it to all the spaces that you can so that it's more likely that the good behaviors are the path of least resistance.
0: I know that a lot of people have great habits maybe that have been lost or completely disrupted, for example, going to the gym or who knows what else, what do we do? What's the process of reclaiming a habit that we've lost that we want to regain?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. You know, and this obviously is happening a lot now just because of the situation, but it also just happens in daily life. Like people will do things for a little while and something changes. And I think there are kind of two ways to answer this. So the first one, big picture way, is I think many people feel this way. People who are ambitious or who want to achieve things have a lot of priorities or goals they want to accomplish. It's hard for me to say no to stuff because I've got a lot of things I want to do. And so you end up biting off more that you can chew or uh, attempting more things than you should if you want to stay focused. And so one just kind of big picture thing that's helped me a little bit with this is thinking about life as a series of seasons. And so the, the question that I keep asking myself is, what season am I in right now? And your habits should match your current season. So for example, for me, so I don't have kids yet, and I'm fairly young, and so I'm in this period where I'm mostly focused on career and personal health. And I kind of have like the family and the friends like dials on the burner, or kind of turned down like a little bit. And that's sort of the season that I'm in. Now at some point I'll have kids and that'll probably signal a shift in seasons and maybe the career burner, the work burner needs to get turned down and the family burner needs to get turned up. And when that happens, my habits are going to need to shift to match that season. So the first question I think to ask is if you've lost a habit and you want to reclaim it, is reclaiming it the best thing for your current season? Mm -hmm. Or are you kind of just like nostalgic for that old habit because you missed that old season? And like maybe it is what you need to do, but it's also possible that maybe the reason it shifted is because you shifted seasons. So that's kind of the first big picture thing. Now the second piece, a little more granular, let's assume that you do actually want to reclaim the habit and is the right thing for the season that you're in a lot of the time you just have some kind of shift in your behavior that leads to this. So for example, maybe you were working out consistently and then you took a new job or your company moved offices or whatever, your commute changed somehow. And at the old office you used to pass the gym on your way to work and now you don't pass the gym. You got to go out of your way to get Mm. there. And just that enough is enough to like curtail the behavior. So the, basically what you want to do is take the habit that you're trying to build or that you wish you could reclaim And then go through this list of like where does it happen? Who am I around? What time do I do it? When in my week or in my day does it usually fit in and you're kind of trying to like Get to the root cause of the problem and understand where the points of friction are So my mom actually did this in a I thought a very good way. She was building an exercise habit And they have a YMCA that's just like a couple, it's like maybe two minutes from their house. It's very close. And so she packed her bag and would go to work. And then as she was leaving work, she'd stop by there before she went home. But there were two parts of the process when she dug into it deeper, as I was just saying, when you kind of ask those questions, what do I do? What time is it? Where, how does it happen? Et cetera there were two parts that she realized she didn't like. One, she didn't like having to remember to pack her bag before work. She wanted to just kind of get up and do her normal routine and go to work. She didn't have to remember to bring the gym stuff. And two, she didn't like working out publicly in front of other people at the Y. And so instead she bought this like at home yoga program and workout thing. And now she doesn't have to do either of those. She goes to work, she comes back, but then she's able to work out right away. And Mm -hmm. that solve those two problems of working out publicly and having to pack her bag. So whatever it is for you, I think asking yourself, what are the points of friction that are preventing me from reclaiming that habit and then trying to solve those specific problems rather than the, the big picture problem, which is, Oh, I wish I had more willpower to work out or something. Well, it's like, no, it's more specific. Why aren't you working out? What is it exactly that's the bottleneck and identifying that I think can help you troubleshoot a little more and pinpoint where to, to focus your attention and get that habit back.
0: Well, one habit, for example, that I'm not doing as much as listening to podcasts because I used to listen on the drive in and back every day, which is about 20, 25 minutes each way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the morning, I used to also listen before I would go to work because all the kids were getting up and getting ready to go to school. So I would, you know, blare it in the shower. But now all those options have been closed to me. So... I haven't found a good way to keep up with podcasts other than going for long, long walks on the weekends, which isn't getting me all that I desire, but maybe I just need to figure out a way to kill a couple birds with one stone and go out for a walk in the morning for 20 minutes instead of a commute. And maybe that's the way I can reclaim
1: that lost habit. Yeah, those are good examples. and. You know, like there's the, now that we have this shift, there is essentially like a a substitution of behaviors that needs to happen. It's like what's going to take the place of the commute, right? Right. So yeah, you can come up with a a new commute and it happens to be, you know, walking through the neighborhood for 10 minutes and you're commuting from your front door to your front door, but (laughs) it's a way to to replace that behavior. So substitution is a a helpful thing too.
0: How can we use this? unusual circumstance, all of us being quote unquote stuck at home, especially those of us that aren't used to, you know, working from home. How can we use this as an opportunity maybe to set some new habits in motion?
1: Yeah. Well, anytime, like I said, anytime there's a big change in the environment, there's a big change in the behavior and that creates opportunity. So let me give a, an example and then I'll, uh, that's not in the home and I'll bring it back. Cool. So a lot of people who I hear from that say, Oh, it's so hard for me to build habits are people who have to travel a lot consultants, people who are traveling for work, whatever. And it makes a lot of sense based on what we were just talking about a few moments ago, which is habits are tied to a context. And so if the context is always changing, you're always going to a new city, always going to a new hotel, whatever, it's really hard to build a stable habit because you're in unstable environments, you're always shifting. And so the strategy that I suggest to them is rather than focusing on the shifting context, focused on a part of the process that is stable. You need something stable to anchor the habit to. So as an example, you could say, after I check in at the hotel, I always say one thing I'm grateful for. So it's like a gratitude habit. Mm -hmm. You don't know which hotel it's going to be. You don't know what city you're going to be in, but you know that you're going to be checking in. Or after I set the luggage on the bed or on the luggage rack in my room, I do 10 burpees. And so it's like, you don't know which room it is. You don't know what it'll look like, but you know that you're going to be setting your luggage down at some point. And so you're trying to find these stable parts of the process to build on.
0: And for those that don't know what a burpee is, it's uh, a workout thing, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a push-up, a jumping jack and like uh, crawling onto the ground and back up. It's yeah. Yeah. You get the same thing, right? You could say I do 10 push-ups right. uh, once I set the footage down or whatever. So the point is you're looking for something stable to tie the new behavior to. All right. So now let's rewind, come back to, we're all working from home now. So, so In a lot of ways, this experience feels like it was forced upon us. Oh, I didn't ask for this. I didn't want to be working from home. Now I have to, it's upsetting all my behaviors and my routines, but we can turn it into an opportunity by asking, okay, what is the new stable thing now? Well, you know, like now that you don't have the commute, maybe you're able to sleep in a little bit longer, build better sleep habits, or maybe now that you don't have to leave the house, you're doing less context switching. So maybe now you can build like uh, cleaning and tidying up habits that you didn't normally have or dishwashing habits or a home workout habit or whatever it is. But Finding the pieces, the either the places or the part of the the stay-at-home process that's stable, and then using that to tie the new behavior to it, that can be a very helpful thing to do. And this um, this strategy is one way to formalize it is there's a professor at Stanford, his name is BJ Fogg, and he's got this method, he calls the tiny habits method. And his little formula is you say, after I do X, then I will do Y. And X is your current habit, Y is your new habit. So you can do this all throughout your day as you're kind of looking around your normal, uh, your new experience as you're working from home. So as an example, let's say that you already have a habit of making a cup of coffee when you wake up in the morning. And that's that's already stable, you know that's gonna happen. You can use that as the springboard to build a new habit. Like let's say you wanna build a habit of meditating or of journaling. You could say something like, after I make my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds. Or after I make my morning cup of coffee, I will journal one sentence. And so then the current habit, the stable thing, becomes the uh, anchor for the new habit that you're trying to build. And in that way, working from home is a huge opportunity because all you gotta do is look around, what are all the stable things that I can count on myself doing? Each one of those could potentially be a connection to a new habit that you can insert into your, your new routine. Love it.
0: You've got a framework that you've come up with for developing habits. Maybe we could just spend a couple
1: minutes talking about what that is. Yeah. So broadly speaking, if you want a good habit to stick, you want about four different things to happen. And these four pieces, you don't always need all of them, but the more that are working in your favor, the more likely it is that the habit will stick. And in atomic habits, I refer to these as the four laws of behavior change. So We've already touched on a couple of them, but broadly speaking, the first thing that you want, if you want a good habit to form, is you want it to be obvious. And that's the first law, make it obvious. The more obvious, available, visible, easy to see a habit is, the more likely it is to catch your attention and get started. So some of the environment design concepts we talked about are like that. The second thing that you want for a habit to stick is you want it to be attractive. And that's the second law, make it attractive. The more attractive or appealing or motivating a habit is, the more likely you are to feel the desire to do it. So, the third law, the third step is to make it easy. The more easy, convenient, frictionless, simple a habit is, the more likely you are to stick to it. We touched on a couple of those, like removing friction, reducing steps, making it as simple as possible. Another one that we didn't talk about is like scaling it down. You know, I have a, a concept in the book that I call the two minute rule. And the basic idea is you take whatever habit you're trying to build. And you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. Hmm. So read 40 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And sometimes people resist that because they're like, okay, I get what you're saying. But like, I also know the real goal is to like do the whole workout. I don't just want to take my yoga mat out. And I get where people are coming from. But the lesson of this is that, um, well, actually a good example of it. So There's a guy that I mentioned in the book, his name's Mitch. He ended up losing over 100 pounds. And when he first started going to the gym, he had a rule for himself where he, for the first six weeks, he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he'd get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds silly. You're like, okay, obviously, it's not going to get the guy the results he wants. But what you realize, if you step back, is that he was mastering the art of showing up, right? He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was only for five minutes. And that is something I think the two-minute rule helps us kind of get over, is that urge to do things perfectly, and if we can't do it perfectly, then why bother? And this, I think, is a much deeper truth about habits that people often overlook, which is a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? Like, it has to become the standard in your life before you can worry about scaling it up or optimizing it.
0: Let me just zoom in on this a little bit. There is something about getting started, like putting the yoga mat out, you know, or showing up for a couple minutes at the gym. There is something, it seems, that happens inside of our mind that once we get started, it's like the flywheel starts to spin and it gets easier. At least something I've observed in myself. Do you find that that's some sort of a universal
1: experience that that you found? I do think there is something, I I hesitate to say universal as if it always happens that way, but man, it sure feels like that most of the time, that most of the friction is at the beginning. That if you can just show up and get into the gym, then it's much easier to finish it. Or if you just start writing the book chapter or write one sentence, then it's much easier to keep going. Ed Lattimore has this great quote where he says, the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. And (laughs) I think that... That's exactly the idea, right? Yeah. Like if you can just manage to open the front door, then yeah, a lot cascades from there. So the two minute rule kind of helps you get to that. And that that's what I mean when I say the third law is like, make it easy. It's not only do easy things. It's make it as easy as possible to do the things that pay off in the long run.
0: Before we go on to number four, I want to go back to the attractive one. Um, what yeah. does that mean exactly? Because it, it's intriguing and I, I would love you just to expand a little bit more on that.
1: Yeah, it is. That's a good question because uh, people are like, well, it's the same habit. If I didn't like doing it the first time, why would it suddenly now be attractive? What are you saying there? So, as an example, let's say you go to bed tonight and you think, all right, you know, I listen to this guy talk about habits. Tomorrow's going to be the day I'm going to go for a run. So, you set your alarm for 6 a.m. 6 a.m. rolls around and your bed is warm. It's cold outside. You're like, well, I'll just press snooze instead. But If you rewind the clock, and you come back to today, and you text a friend, and you say, hey, can we meet at the park at 6.15 and go for a run? Hmm. Well, now, 6 a.m. rolls around, and your bed is still warm, and it's still cold outside, but if you don't get up and go for a run, you're a jerk, because you leave your friend at the park all alone. And so, suddenly, what you've done is you've simultaneously made it more attractive to get up and go for a run, and less attractive to press snooze and sleep in. And so there are a variety of strategies like that in the book that this particular one is what's called a commitment device. It's a a choice that you make in the present moment. I'm going to text my friend to have an accountability partner tomorrow that locks in your behavior in the future. Oh, now I need to get up and go for a run. I can't just sleep in. And so it kind of changes the calculus that's going on in your mind and makes it more appealing than it otherwise would be. Uh, It doesn't make it easier in that case, but it does make it a little more attractive.
0: Awesome. So we've talked about first law is to make it obvious. Second, make it attractive.
1: Third, make it easy. What's the fourth? Right. So the fourth and final law is to make it satisfying. And the idea here is that behaviors need to be enjoyable. They need to be pleasurable or have some kind of positive emotion associated with them for you to want to repeat it again in the future. You know, if you do something and it's like, has a consequence, isn't that enjoyable or just is kind of neutral your brain essentially is like, why would I repeat that again? Like I didn't really get anything out of it. And so this is one of the challenges of building good habits. It also is a very illuminating piece that shows in part why it's so easy to build a lot of good habits and so hard to build a lot of bad ones. Because you can think about pretty much any behavior as producing multiple outcomes across time. So broadly speaking, let's just call it like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. For a lot of bad habits, the immediate outcome is like actually kind of favorable. You know, like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is great. It's sweet, it's sugary, it's tasty, it's enjoyable. Or even something like uh, smoking a cigarette. Maybe you get to socialize with a friend outside of work or it curbs your nicotine craving or reduces stress. It's only the ultimate outcome, you know, six months or two years or five years from now, if you keep doing that, that's unfavorable. Mm. Meanwhile, good habits are often the reverse. Like the immediate outcome of going to the gym is i don't know almost kind of unfavorable like you go to the gym for a week your body's sore you look the same in the mirror the scale hasn't really changed it's only if you keep doing it for six months or a year or two years that you get that favorable outcome you want and so a lot of the challenge of getting good habits to stick and getting bad habits to break is finding a way to pull the long-term rewards of your good habits into the present moment. So, oh, it feels enjoyable, it feels pleasurable right now. You get a little bit of feedback that, hey, this is good. And finding a way to take those long-term consequences or the costs of your bad habit and pull it into the uh, into the present moment so you feel a little bit of the pain right now. And it's like, oh, I should avoid that. And that, I think, is maybe one good distinction, one way to summarize or distinguish between good habits and bad habits is that, The cost of your good habits is in the present. The cost of your bad habits is in the future. And that misalignment between the two leads to a lot of unproductive behaviors or unhealthy behaviors because we tend to prioritize the present moment. We tend to prioritize the immediate short-term rewards. And it's a principle that I think is so strong that in Atomic Habits I refer to it as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that get immediately rewarded get repeated. Behaviors that get immediately punished get avoided. Mm. And it's, it's really about the speed of how quickly you feel successful or feel unsuccessful that drives you toward or away certain behaviors. So anyway, satisfaction and reward is is also an, an important component of getting habits to stick.
0: James, this has been absolutely fascinating. I just want to say on behalf of all my listeners, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom and insights on this if they want to get the book Atomic Habits, I'm assuming that, assuming they can find that anywhere books are sold unless there's a special place you want to send them. And and if they also want to somehow connect with you or get on your newsletter, where do you want to send
1: them? Yeah, so you can find Atomic Habits uh, wherever you want to buy books. Uh, if you want to make it simple, you can just go to atomichabits.com and there are links to Amazon, Barnes Noble, et cetera, all there. If you'd like to see more of my work or writing, sign up for the newsletter or whatever, you can find all that at jamesclear.com. My, probably, aside from the book, I'm probably best known for the weekly newsletter. It's called 321. I send out three short ideas from me, two quotes from other people, and then one question to think about. And that goes out every Thursday of the week. So um, anyway, you can find all that at jamesclear.com.
0: Thank you so much, James. Really appreciate you. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. And by the way, if you missed anything, during this interview, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 404. And hey, if you're new to this show, would you hit the subscribe button? That way you'll never miss a future episode. And if you've been a long time listener, would you let your friends know about this show? Thank you so much. This brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day and may social media Continue to change your world. Catch you next time. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. If you're like so many fellow marketers and creators and entrepreneurs, you're probably wondering, how do I put AI to work? Well, be sure to listen to the AI Explored Podcast, a new show from Social Media Examiner, hosted by yours truly, Michael Stelzner. Again, check out the AI Explored podcast.